Hi, this is Jonathan Mickles with the Strategic Multifamily Investing Podcast, and I have with me Mr. David Black. How are you doing, David? Hey, I'm very well. How are you? Doing well. We've had some nice technical challenges here, and uh, we finally got it together. <laughs> so thanks so we much did. for being with us. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm very glad to be here. It feels like uh, the fruits of my labor. There you go. Well, first of all, your shirt slay. I mean, what's going on with the what's going on with the shirt? Uh, it's you know this. I it's it's just like my inspiration to just you know get up and seize the day. So uh, you know that's 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 how I feel. You know when I just get up, get out there, and you know just try to make some deals happen. You know just get my business going. There you go. I like the uh, I like the shirt. I like the motivation there. So let's talk a little bit more about um, I guess how you got into real estate investing or just in real estate in general. I mean because your resume is impressive to say the least, and we'll Thank have you. a link to to your, his resume and all the things that he's done. But I want to talk a little bit more about you know kind of how you started because if I'm not mistaken, you actually started as a receptionist in a real estate firm. That's that's right. Um, so I, uh, I, I, when I decided that I wanted to get into real estate investing, um, I, I was trying to figure out where my entry point was going to be. Uh, and so I spent a little time just, uh, you know, talking to people, networking, interviewing, and, uh, I found this firm that was doing, uh, brownfield redevelopment. Uh, they were basically buying uh, contaminated properties and turning them around. You know, it's the ultimate value add distressed uh, asset acquisition. And so I, I was fascinated by it. You know, and frankly, what I was really attracted to was the idea of being able to buy real estate at a deal. You know, it's just like getting it at a good price. And granted, but, you have to work for it. But it's a brownfield. Okay, for those who don't yeah, know, what, I, what, what is a brown? What is a brownfield? Describe what a brownfield is. Sure, sure. So uh, brownfield is the uh, category or, you know, term of art that is used to describe properties that have been impacted by contamination. So, you know, that could be everything from, you know, just like what you would envision, like, you know, radioactive like sites, right? Those are like the extreme version. And then you'll have things like, you know, gas station sites where like the underground storage tank has leaked into the ground or a dry cleaner where the dry cleaning solvents have like, you know, seeped into the uh, property, you know, and things like that, you know, so it's not as extreme where, you know, you step on the property and you walk away glowing, you know, but it's, it's the kind of situation that requires by regulation, some kind of cleanup. And usually there's like liabilities attached to how it got from a clean asset to what it was. And, um, you know, so, Brownfield redevelopment is essentially the business of going in, taking these sites, cleaning them up, and you know just getting them back online until you know they're safe, fully operational properties again. So I mean, before I guess going into the you know kind of how you progress from there, but what you said you started, you were interviewing and things of that sort. You really wanted to be in real estate, or is it just that this was just one of the places that you were interviewing with to try to find a job or something? Uh, no, so I, I I specifically made the decision first that I wanted to be in real estate, and to me that meant specifically being able to invest into real estate assets with an eye towards wealth building 
using real estate. I I looked at it as a vehicle to essentially create uh, an entrepreneurial platform that could, you know, essentially solve that for me. Uh, And so I was really scanning the market and talking to people and networking with that in mind. Got it. Okay, got it. And so you, you uh, were successfully added on as the receptionist. I mean, what would yeah. you have? <laughs> Go ahead. So, so uh, yeah. So, um, I mean, it wasn't necessarily that I went looking for this job and I saw the opening. It was that I had I had previously met, you know, with uh, one of the guys who was telling me about what he did. And he happened to mention that he was looking to hire a receptionist. So after you know just going out, networking, interviewing around, I realized that you know I really want to learn this space. I want to learn how to buy distressed assets, and I want to you know create you know this is my on ramp right here. I was like, but you know they weren't big enough that they were going to hire someone of my qualification, you know, and and the schooling that I had gone through, but they were looking to hire receptionists. So I came in and I said, listen, you just found your receptionist. It's your lucky day. I said, I am going to take whatever you were going to pay this receptionist. Um, and in exchange, I want three things from you. Uh, so I said, uh, I want to gain experience in the business that you're in. I want to build my network here and try to build my contact base uh, through this platform. Uh, and I want the opportunity to earn equity in the investments that uh, we work on together, you know, that I, you know, where I can contribute value. You know, I want an opportunity to get a little scrape of these deals that you're doing for the work that I'm doing. And I said, I'll fetch your coffee. I'll, you know, I'll organize your, you know, paper clips and everything else you want done. Okay, I, I I was gonna go somewhere else with this interview, but I've got two other questions. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, what kind of education did you have? You had some education and training before getting in here. Where, what kind of education and training did you have? Uh, so by that time, I had uh, I had earned my law degree. I'd earned a master's in negotiation, and I had uh, completed my uh, MBA as well. Um, and I was taking the bar exams around that time. I, I basically ended up, uh, I'm licensed in New York, New Jersey, and California. I sat for all three, uh, along the way. So, um, I, I was hyper-educated, one could say. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. All right. All right. All right. So you're hyper-educated and you said you had a master's in, in negotiation? That's right. Yeah. I, I went to uh, Pepperdine University. Uh, They had a program there for negotiation. I had taken some negotiation classes in law school. um, And, you know, generally speaking, the law school format is, you know, they teach you like cases as the basis for the law. And it's very, um, it's very academic, you know. Uh, But in terms of like practical skill set, you know, when I took some of the negotiation classes, I mean, I always gravitated to just the uh, the art of negotiation, but in terms of like having a discipline around that, that yeah. fascinated me. And, and the classes were so great because you you were literally just role playing different scenarios and you know resolving conflicts and whatever. So 
once I took some of those classes and I was able to identify that there was a, a full-fledged dedicated program that was very well regarded, I was all about it. Uh, and so I just continued uh, my education into getting that master's. So for somebody like myself, who I've done some negotiation, but you know, I, I think I could use you know a refresher and or you know more training. Is there something out there right now that you like that you can say, you know what? Yeah, this book, this course is pretty decent on negotiation. Do you have anything like that? Well, uh, the the book that was like the the Bible of uh, a lot of the negotiation courses and really the foundation uh, is a book called Getting to Yes. Uh, and then there was a follow-up to that called Getting Past No. Super easy reading, um, but it really uh, provided uh, just a fantastic, simple way to think about uh, negotiating uh, and really like the idea of moving away from positional bargaining, you know, where you take one side, someone takes the other and right. focusing behind people's positions, thinking about what their interests are uh, and thinking about the priorities of those interests. You know, when, when you're, when you default to things like positional bargaining, you know, you tend to think, you know, in terms of dollars, let's say, when you're negotiating yeah. price as an example, right? right? But yeah. sometimes people have other priorities, like, you know, and sometimes it's, you know, time, certainty, um, certain emotional aspects. And yeah. it just, uh, yeah. it really, it, it pays to try to mine for that information to then really try to get to a deal that, uh, you know, works even better than what, you could have gotten if you had just taken the like, you know, this is my bid uh, type of a structure and approach to a negotiation where the other person starts to become a little more adversarial and yeah. counter to where you are. So, you know, that's, that's, that was always something that uh, was referenced and you just start to internalize certain habits and, you know, not to say, listen, sometimes it is about price. Sometimes you do have to position yeah. You know, sometimes there is a little bit of gamesmanship involved, but, you know, to be able to rely on that and fall back on that, I think is, um, you know, uh, just, it's been hugely helpful uh, in my practice and just my professional development and just generally how I run my business. So what type of law do you practice? I mean, you, you sat for the bar in, you know, three different states, um, California, New Jersey, and New York. What what type of law do you uh, do you practice? I like to uh, refer to myself as a professional client of other lawyers that I hire. <laughs> <laughs> I I uh, so I I don't practice. I you know my primary business is really on the business side of things, uh, and it's always it's always been. Um, I I think uh, I, when I was in law school. You know, I interned for some law firms doing transactional work and working on deals. And every time I was doing that, I found when I was like, you know, they would hand me the contract and be like, okay, go through this painful document. I would read the document. I'd read the business terms. And I would think to myself, I don't want to be the guy doing this. I want to be the guy doing the deal who hands this to the guy doing this. Got it. And it was just, you know, and, and so I knew very quickly while I was in law school that my end goal here 
I, I mean, I got, I sat for the bar. I needed to just at least get my licenses. It was like, you know, that was just the natural like finish to having gone to law school. But I also I knew, yeah, you know, that I knew I was not going to practice. But I will say this, you know, I think law school makes, uh, they, they, the biggest mistake that they make is that they really just position from a marketing standpoint, their degree strictly for the practice of law. When if you look around at some of the most hugely successful business people uh, in the world, they all have law degrees. And I think it's because you do pick up a discipline in uh, your analytical skills, uh, in how you write, in how you read, um, and it absolutely impacts how I think about things, how I frame things. Um, you know, so I, I don't look at it and say, oh, well, I didn't practice law. That was a bit of a waste. I could have skipped that and gone straight to what I'm doing. I actually think it contributed to my path. Yeah. So so I, I've, I've quickly, you know, we've quickly kind of gone down and figure out, you know, why did you want to get into real estate? It seemed like you want to be that guy who's handing these these cases off to someone else. Again, being that professional. <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Lawyers are, you know, they, they very often, you know, you know, you know, it's like when when the lawyer might come in and just like drop some serious, you know, convoluted stuff on you, and you're just like, I don't even understand what you're saying, but like, deal with this. I'm the opposite. I, I'm like, I know exactly what you're saying, and let's just <laughs> boil this down to what this is. You know, it, it could be done in a simpler manner this way. So this is how we're gonna do it. It's so. You know, I'm, I'm an acquired taste as a client. Some lawyers appreciate that I make their job easier. And some of them don't work for me after a while. Well, because they want bill rate, right? I mean, that's... Oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, a lot of times I pick up, I just like, I'll do some of the stuff like, you know, you know, just put together partnership agreements and stuff like that. Just because, you know, when you're in this business long enough, you know, you effectively get, you know, a law degree, just being a professional in the business, you know, you just do it enough times, you know, it's like you've seen leases, you've seen contracts, you know, they start to look, feel, and act the, the same. same, you know. There's a lot of boilerplate yeah. in all of them, and you can uh, in this section, this is what's going to happen, in this section, this is what's going to happen, you need to focus right. on this section, yeah. So, exactly. So, so okay, we're, we're, we're working as a receptionist, so highly educated, we know why we want to get into real estate. Uh, we've asked for three things, um, you know, from, from this job. Number one, you need to know. Number two, you want to, or learn. Number two, you want to build your contact base. And number three, you want to actually get a portion of the deal. How did that work out? How long were you there at that particular firm? And then kind of how, you, how did you progress after? So, um, you know, I wanted to manage expectations uh, in exchange for the opportunity. So, you know, the last thing that I added was once I feel like I, I, I have gotten these things and I have a handle on how to do this, I'm leaving. So I wanted to, you know, just let them know this wasn't a forever situation. You know, and not even if I got promoted, I just, you know, my goal was I was looking at it like an apprenticeship. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so uh, I was there for about two years. Uh, and, you know, I got to a point where, you know, I realized, you know, it was, I was ready to go. Did you so, pick up any deals at all? I mean, were you a part of any of the yeah. deals? Okay. And, and yeah, yeah. you're not making a lot of money. So did you have another stash of cash where you were investing in these deals or was it specifically sweat equity where you were a GP, LP? How did, 
talk to us a little bit about that structure and you know how yeah sure so i mean my the the investment firm itself was acting as a gp for the deals that the company had done so i was able to participate on the gp side um, on those deals uh so you know part of it was certainly sweat equity um and i did have a little money that i was able to put in i mean nothing you know to like you know move the dial but enough for me to commit mentally to the fact that i decided i wanted to invest in real estate so you know i wanted to just execute that you know just get accustomed to what it like you know was about right seeing you know skin in the game and you know just seeing a return on that investment so you know so that was that was how i did it i mean listen i was i was very young i had very um low expenses at the time um if you don't mind me asking yeah i i mean i was in my like mid-20s okay Uh, yeah so you know I, i i had come out of school and you know i wasn't you know, I never really had a high burn rate, personally speaking. Um, you know, so it wasn't like I needed to like live large or you know do anything. I mean, you're in New you're in New York now, right? Or are you where? Are yeah. You but that's yeah. that's pretty pretty expensive there in New York. You know, I guess you acclimate to wherever you are, right? I mean, technically, I could have moved elsewhere, and I probably would have been you know balling. But you know, here, yeah, you know, I, I lived within my means. Let's put it that way. You know, and so it was easy for me at the time to really just be able to have the privilege, truly, of working in a position that certainly was not a livelihood by any means in and of itself, right? I mean, not everybody gets that shot. Right. So you were there for two years. You you were able to participate on the GP side. You had a little bit of cash that you were to put into the deals and move on. You were in your mid-20s. So you're moving on and you're still invested in some of those deals, you know, at 25, 27 years old, I would assume, because generally, at least what, what I'm seeing is that a lot of these deals, I don't know, what was the, was the business model to, you know, kind of fix and flip, you know, go in, clean them up, you know, rent it up and then leave? Or, you know, were you into it for like five years or so, you know, before you were able to, to cash out? So um, it depended on the deal. You know, that's the, the one thing about distressed assets is that it tends to gravitate towards um, more of that fix and flip type model. You know, yeah. you come in, you know, you essentially, uh, you know, do the rehab, whether it's from a management standpoint or actual physical property standpoint. And it's right. usually a liquidation because yeah. the premium you know, when you're buying distressed is like, you know, you're starting at such a low basis that what you've created, you know, just to bring it to market, not even assuming any market appreciation is usually significant enough that you want to get out and realize that. Uh, So that, that was what the exit was. So, you know, I did see uh, exits uh, shortly after. Yeah. So that was, that was nice. It it was, uh, it was rewarding not just in the financial sense you know just to see that full cycle okay so after two years there you went on where where did you go how how did you grow because i mean i i see more of your resume you are definitely highly educated beyond just (laughs) (laughs) the the degrees in law um but what what did you that what did you go after that so so after that i just i i decided i wanted to launch my own platform I focused on creating a distressed platform. I ended up running it for 10 years. Um, this was what class you know, of years. 
in, were you in residential? Were you in commercial only? I, so I, I, I didn't care. Uh, for me, uh, it was really just about finding the deals. I was buying defaulted mortgages from banks. Got it. Uh, I was into everything. You know, whatever they wanted to sell me, I was a buyer. I mean, we're talking multifamily, uh, industrial assets. You know, I, I was hotels, gas stations, marinas, golf courses. I mean, now, you know, you, just naming. Were you focused on getting those notes to perform or pretty much just getting them to, to break them apart? Uh, so it, it really all... Uh, it was really all a function of the, of the deal itself, but I was always buying with the optionality of my exit, right? So if, if a borrower really wanted the asset, uh, you know, and they just needed a little like, you know, breathing room to get things going again, then that was fine. I mean, cause you know, especially if you're a real estate operator, you know, where you're actually working the assets to create the value you're creating, you know, when you're sitting in the lender seat, it's kind of nice to take a break and watch somebody else do that to deliver your exit for you. Um, you know, so so it wasn't uh, too hard to make that decision. You know, I always, the, the philosophy of the business, and I think that it's actually something that I carry in general, whether I'm buying distressed or not, but you make your money on the buy. Exactly. That's what I always say, right? It's That's it. You make your money on the buy. That's right. So, you know, you gotta you gotta really think about that because you know the second you buy that asset, you know you've got to have some margin for profit right away. Yep. Um, otherwise, you're really just buying like contingent downside. Yep. Like <laughs> you got it right, exactly, and and it depends on the market. So, right now, you know, we're in the midst of COVID. When we're 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 talking about this, we're talking about maybe another you know second wave that's coming. And, uh, you know, there have been people who are are talking, you know, hey, there may be keys being thrown in the street, you know, because of some distress situations coming up very soon. Um, Or at least that's what I'm hearing. Um, Is that what you're hearing? And do you think that someone who may have a distressed platform or that model would be good to maybe get it up and running for this next, uh, say, three to six months? Uh, I would say the latter. I mean, I, I will say, you know, when I ran my distressed fund, you know, I was like, you know, it started off onesie twosie deals and then, you know, the last recession just hit and all of a sudden the, you know, the pipeline opened, you know, uh, and I got institutional capital invested with me and I had a strong run through the downturn. And I dissolved the fund in 2012 when the market started to rebound. And since then, I've been doing onesie twosie deals because that's really what the market supported when you've been looking, you know, when you look for distressed and opportunistic kind of deals. Uh, the market's just been so strong. So um, I've 100% noticed a pickup uh, in uh, opportunities being presented now. Uh, I think that uh, I think that there's going to be an increase in that because the onesie twosies that are maybe a little more than onesie twosies, maybe they're threesie foursies, if that's a thing. But uh, I, I think that, you know, you have to remember that um, the COVID lockdown put a lot of aspects of the economy and real estate in particular into what I would describe as like an induced coma, mm-hmm. right? We're just, we just kind of hit pause on a lot of things, okay. you know, where forbearances were just handed out to everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. And what is 
going to happen now going into what a fourth quarter first quarter of next year and you know maybe for some time beyond that uh is that these uh forbearances are going to burn off and the lenders are going to have a very clear picture of who comes back from this and who just isn't coming back from this so i think when they realize who uh who's not coming back from this they're going to just get rid of this stuff and comparably you know i do think that you're just going to have sellers like you said you know who are just going to throw in the towel on these assets especially if their loans are non-recourse you know they're just going to say look it's just not worth me bringing this back online right now the the amount of money i'm going to have to bring in just to get it back to where it was and the time it's going to take to do that is just going to be too much i'm out so i think that is going to present some great opportunities so are you, uh, I mean, you said you were doing ones and twosies after 2012, you know, do you currently have a fund or are you doing syndications for the deals that you're doing moving forward? So historically it's uh, been syndications for the most part because uh, I haven't really found enough deal flow to sustain a fund. Uh, and and it's it's not a question of capital. I think that there is just a huge amount of capital that is chasing deals uh, in real estate and particularly in the distress space right now. So the you know accessing that capital is not so much an issue. It's deploying that capital that's the biggest challenge. And you know a lot of people, uh, you know, it's like one of these grass is always greener kind of uh, situations, right? You know, when you have deals, you know, you're thinking, man, I'd love to just have this big like war chest of, you know, capital to take advantage of these opportunities that I can see either now and or in the future. Um, but, you know, by the same token, you have groups who came out of the gate strong forming these funds and you know they have to deliver a performance on the fund dollars they got committed months ago yeah. right so every day that goes by that's as, is every day that goes by that they don't do a deal is a day that they delivered a zero return on that money got it and when they finally put that money out even if a deal comes back and just crushes it it's just up. gonna it's got to catch up right so in effect they're now in a hole you know, so I've always tried to avoid that. And, uh, you know, the other thing is I just don't want to have a gun to my head to be making bad deals uh, for the sake of deploying money. So it's, it's really just been to date uh, syndications because I've been fortunate enough to have investors that have interest in the deals that I do that when I present the deals, you know, I'm able to capitalize them. And, and I know the capital markets and the lending market very well because of all the deals I've done just trading debt that I can access financing when I need it as well. And that, there's a lot, and I know you've got to get out. <laughs> it's, more, it's a ton more questions. So we're not doing necessarily a fund at this present time because the deal flow isn't quite there there as yet, but maybe in the next three to six months, we're saying that, that it would be there for someone to create a fund. Otherwise, um, gaining access to say distressed funds, which seems to be your, your sweet spot. Are you still in that distressed funds area? I guess that's a. Uh, so, I mean, you know, if you're asking me if I'm, uh, you know, moving towards forming a distressed fund, uh, in the near term, I mean, the, the direct answer is yes. Uh, I just think uh, 
you know, and, and I'm, I'm saying that to address the question of whether there are going to be enough distressed opportunities presenting themselves in the market uh, to be able to deploy that kind of capital. And so that's really what's the, what the driver is. Um, you know, and I do think that there are now opportunities, uh, and I think that there will be more so. Um, you know, people think it's because people are bleeding, you know, that like, you know, when they think of distress, but, you know, in fact, it's, it's, um, it's a lot easier for a bank to write down a loss when the overall health of the bank is strong. And, you know, when, when I compare it, having run my fund through the last recession where all the banks were essentially just by the day, day just dying, right? FDIC was coming in, taking them over. They weren't letting go of their defaulted loans. I, I had their defaulted loans. I mean, just to give you a contrast. And I would talk to the bank and I'd say, listen, I'm going to buy this stuff from you. I'm going to deliver cash to your books. You know, it's worth X. We both know it's worth that now. And they said no. And then the next day, the FDIC would come in and take them over. And the reason why it was harder to do deals then and why it's different now is because capital availability and the health of the banks is so much stronger that it's so much easier to take a haircut on a few loans and take that money and put it back to work to do the thing that they do as a business, which is make money on money. So then... Oh God, there's so many questions. <laughs> this is great. This is great. I, I've done one defaulted note and it was about $600,000 and about probably 20, 20, 30 doors, you know, and it was a combination of single family and uh, multifamily at one time. And, you know, um, so, so will you be, I won't ask that. I would, that I want to leave you your, your unique selling proposition. So you're going after the banks rather than going after say the sellers. Um, when you're, when you're, when you're attacking this, this whole situation. Uh, usually that's, that's, uh, where I like to transact. Um, because, uh, I mean, not to say that I haven't transacted with sellers that are in a position that they need to exit, you know, I'm doing, a couple of deals like that right now where the sellers just absolutely have to sell, um, you know, and I'm their exit. You know, the, 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 the distressed transaction, you know, the traditional transaction is, uh, you know, taking like a classic economics, yeah. right? You know, the equilibrium point of the trade is where supply meets demand, right? right? And where the seller wants to get the absolute highest price, the buyer wants to get the lowest price and the strike price is right in the middle, right? right. Where, in distress transactions, the way that it's typically working is that the buyer gets the lowest price and the seller, they just want out. They want yes. certainty of execution <laughs> and an exit. And if you can deliver that, they don't necessarily have to take every last dollar because once you go into the red on a sale, right? Once you're already selling for a loss or something lesser than you know what was value and you're just looking to cut losses, at that point, you become far less sensitive to whether that loss is like this much or that much right. to some degree, right? Time. And, you, and if you're in a stronger position as a bank, you know, it's just, you're going to recover from it. So, oh yeah, it just washes over quarter yeah. to quarter. And I would say even more so, you know, if a bank goes and announces in the fourth quarter of 2020 yeah. that 
you know, they took a loss of this many real estate loans, you know, is anyone really going to ding them too hard and say, you're a bad bank, you mismanaged? No, they're going to say, oh yeah, we were just in one of like, the, like, you know, historic, uh, you know, pandemics, you know, you again, right. You know, I right. Think right. Okay. So we don't have to bail you out. You're in generally good financial health and you cut your losses on the dog loans that you had on your books so that you could take that money that you did recover and then lend it out again. So, you know, I, I think that it's, it's just going to present it's the opportunities from there. So that's, that's why generally I'm primarily targeting and, dealing with the lenders over a seller, you know, but not, not exclusively. Got it. All right. Now I've got about three minutes left of your time and I know you've I've got to get you out so you can get to your next thing. So what are you, what are you doing right now? I think you had about three separate uh, business lines you were in. And then finally, how do people get in contact with you? That might be the simplest one to ask answer first, but what do we got? Well, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, all right, I'm active on my socials. You can absolutely, uh, you know, LinkedIn is is really just a very easy way to uh, connect with me. Um, I, I stay active there, and you know, I'm always on top of the industry. Just you know, uh, so that's that's the easy one. Uh, the the three lines of business that I'm currently in. So you know, principally investing, as I mentioned, into you know, the types of opportunities that we just spent uh, talking about. Uh, I also uh, have an advisory uh, arm to our business uh, that's focused really on debt solutions to borrowers and lenders. Uh, you know, so with borrowers who are looking to think about how to finance their deals, you know, or need help capital structuring, you know, we're working with groups like that, you know, to help them both think about the best way to structure and then obviously to access that debt capital uh, for their projects. Uh, and then um, the third uh, line is, uh, it's an online marketplace platform uh, called Banksell, which is really lender to lender uh, that uh, I created so that lenders could buy and sell loans from each other, non-performing loans, performing loans, participations in loans. You know, it's just really, for me, I've just been in the debt space uh, for so long uh, that, um, you know, I just, I know the players, I know the structures, yeah. you know, and so I'm always thinking about uh, just the most efficient way to structure capital for real estate transactions, what the drivers are, you know, yeah. and this goes back to the whole concept of the negotiation, you know, I, I spend a lot of time understanding like what the capital makeup is of a lot of like even lending groups and investment groups, right? What's their driver? What's their interest? Yeah. Right. And then I know who to go to. Right. You know, yeah. a lot of people just think about I need money, you know, but again, that's more of a positional approach. But yep. if you know that this fund likes this kind of asset and they have a fund they just raised, they got to get money out the door. You want to talk to them first. It's an efficient execution. Well, listen, David, I thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to have to talk again. There's too much stuff to talk about with David. <laughs> and uh, if you want to reach out to him, reach out to him on LinkedIn. Thanks again, David, for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me.